This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello welcome and thank you for downloading the red box politics podcast the very best of uh, matt chorley's times radio show although matt is off this week so you've got me luke jones instead uh, we've got a great interview coming up with alan duncan uh, the former conservative mp former uh, minister his diaries are out next week and if you've been following some of the serializations he's not been too kind about many of his colleagues um lots of words which we we can't say even on an unruly podcast like this um so i'll ask him about that and also uh, the years 2016 to 2019 which he writes about because woof a lot happened then you forget so alan duncan coming up but first our columnists which are Indian Knight and James Merritt. And I started by asking them, in the spirit of, of diaries, uh, to give us their favourites, starting with India. I only found out quite recently that we were going to be looking at diary entries, so I raced around trying to find my copy of Chris Mullins. Um, oh, yes. Diary. There are three volumes. I can find numbers two and three, but not number one, A View from the Foothills, which is marvellous. Mm. So I would have read, I commend it very much to anybody listening who hasn't read it, but um, anyway, I couldn't find it. Uh, the best I could do was uh, Roy Strong, now Sir Roy Strong, oh, yeah. who was the youngest ever director of the Victoria and Albert Museum on the 7th of April, 1976, when this was written. And it's interesting because... A, it's interesting because Roy Strong's diaries are so exquisitely rarefied and snobbish that, <laughs> that, that, that they're kind of really fun to read because obviously the more appalling the content, the more engaging it is to the reader. Um, but also, this is about Margaret Thatcher or the, 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 the leftovers of Margaret Thatcher. Very interesting in the kind of daily um, judgment and snobbery she faced. So 7th of April, 1976. I went to the Minister for Education's office for the presentation of a medal. The Minister, Fred Mully, is a North Country slob, coarse of feature, not very bright, but affectionate and good in his handling of the occasion. The office was still largely, with Mrs Thatcher's decor, suburban hairdresser style, doors with panels of beading laid over and painted gold and with a white carpet. Exclamation mark. The permanent secretary, Sir William Pyle, was very funny about her, how she'd slaved to learn French privately for her great visit to Geneva, got into the hotel and tried to order a drink, collapsing back to her hopeless schoolgirl French. 
His most revealing moment with her, he said, was when, during a sex scandal, she had steeled herself up one day when travelling in the back of the car with him to ask, did men really pay that kind of money for that sort of thing? She lives in a world apart, unaware of how most of the population lives. He said that her law degree wasn't much. Her command of facts, terrific within a set area, but beyond that, nothing. Her knowledge of history was nil. Ooh, lovely stuff. Um, James, where are you going to take us? So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to uh, just promote one of my favourite books, which is called The Journal of a Disappointed Man by a guy called WNP Barbellion, who was... It should be much better known, but he wrote, he was um, an Edwardian naturalist who in his early 20s worked in the Natural History Museum um, cataloguing lice. Um, but he was, he's left this diary. Cataloguing lice? Incredibly anxious. Cataloguing lice, which I think okay. he wanted to get out of. Yes. He wanted to be a poet or a novelist or something. Fair. But he left this diary full of, um, it's hilarious, full of, full of endless anxieties. He's always falling in, in love with people, then back, out, <laughs> then back out of love with them for completely stupid reasons. Um, so one of, one of my favourite entries, which is um, from the 14th of April, he's talking about the girl he, he thought he was in love with, but then he realises um, with this, uh, it's only a short diary entry, but he says, I tried my best. I've sought every loophole of escape, but I'm quite, un- unavoid- I'm quite unable to avoid the melancholy fact that her thumbs are lamentable. I'm genuinely <laughs> upset about it. No one more than I would have been delighted with if they were otherwise. Oh dear, how I love her. That's why I'm so concerned about her thumbs. Um, the whole diary is like this it's completely hilarious it can get a little bit too much of it if you read like you know about if you read too many pages at once but i i love it it's yes incredibly silly well <laughs> fantastic stuff thank you both uh, and we'll hear um we'll hear from alan duncan on his diaries just after 11 o'clock um diaries juicy have you read them Luke? i've had it so i've read all the the um the, the civilizations that were in the mail and then mm. uh, yesterday they sent me a 524 page pdf um so i sort of knew the areas that i wanted to touch on so i was doing lots of control effing and and finding names for people so i sort of dipped in on on various points it's good it's a lot better written in the book than i was expecting from the serialization because the serialization seemed to have boiled everything down to single sentences and i thought oh well this seems a bit boring the thing about diaries i think particularly political diaries is you kind of want the person to reveal themselves to be appalling Mm. in a in an unexpected way. <laughs> yes. And also, I like the way there was a good, um, there was a column the other day that Giles Brandreth wrote for the, for the Telegraph yesterday, actually, talking about the political operatives and how they write their diaries. And I'd never heard this, any anecdote before, I hope it's true, about Barbara Castle asking um, Harold Wilson to speak more slowly in a cabinet meeting because she was trying to jot down what he was saying for a diary. Which <laughs> <Okay>. is <laughs> lovely. Um, anyway, to the, new, to the news of the day. Um, India, what, what do you make of all this? Um, the, the show we had yesterday at Downing Street over the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine and the uh, and the government trying to balance between okay there are there are some risks but they're vanishingly small but also it's very safe and if you get offered it you, you should take it you should take it um well i think if you get offered it you absolutely should take it um but i am not under 30 um i always think that these those sort of arbitrary demarcations are so strange you know what are you supposed to do if you're 29 and a half or mm. 31 and a quarter um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because all of this time we've thought, um, even very Europe-loving people like me have thought, huh, why is Europe being so silly? You know, this marvellous vaccine saving the world. It's all great. I wish they'd pipe down. And actually, it turns out they had a point. Um, I think I think, I think, I think it's very hard. I think everybody offered the AstraZeneca vaccine should 100% take it. But 
there will absolutely be uh, there will confidence in it will have absolutely taken a knock. And I don't really know how, apart from repeating endlessly that people should have it regardless. I don't really know how you combat that. Yes. So, it's, but James, I'm by it. James, you were you were affected by the news yesterday. Yes. I mean, I would obviously still take it. I think the strange thing is that statistics and um, calculations of risk are just so hard for people to intuitively understand. Mm. I think mm. it's something that we can't naturally get our heads around. And, you know, when, when they say that, um, you know, whatever the risk of a blood clot is from the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is, I mean, I think really presumably completely vanishingly rare. The mm. fact that that risk exists, I think, is hard for us to kind of catalogue in our minds because we understand that it exists, but it's hard to get our heads around the complete vanishing rarity because mm. when you get up into orders of, you know, one in a million or one in 250,000 or whatever it is, it's just so hard for the human brain to compute that. So I think all we can really do is rely on scientists who I think understand these things much better than we do. Or, or, the, or the British... I, I am optimistic, sorry. I was going to say, or, or even the, the brilliant comparisons which the British Medical Journal gave us, which um, the, the likelihood of getting one of these rare blood clots from the Oxford vaccine is the same as having a plane fall out of the sky and kill you in your own home, or you drowning in the bath in the next 12 months, which I think Yes, were... that's what you want on posters. And on yes. <laughs> that's, immediately, that's immediately understandable. I am, as I say, not in the um, at-risk or at slightly minutely increased risk category, but when I yesterday evening, having watched the press conference, um, I wondered whether I had um, thrombosis in my leg, and it turned out it was only pins and needles. But, oh you know, come on! But you get but yeah. the, the things are once these things are out in the air. Um, I think people that yeah they're very alarming. The drowning in the bath thing is great. Yes. And, and James, do you think that all of this will be eased by having the, the soothing words of the scientists on telly last night and we're told they're going to be all over the airways and television stations in the next few days as well? I mean, do you feel comforted when you see Matt Hancock or, or JVT talking about DVT? Yeah, I feel comforted by JVT. And I also think in general, I just, I'm optimistic that the, the idea of having a vaccine has become so normalised now. I think there was a study at the end of March that said um, there was a previous survey in December where they'd asked people who they'd asked how many people would be hesitant about taking the vaccine. And I think when they revisited all those people in March, um, four fifths of them said that their hesitancy had dissolved and they would take it. I just think it's become such a big part of our, na our national consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, people post their vaccine cards onto Instagram. Mm -hmm. I just think it's become this huge thing for everyone. It's so normalised now that I I, th I think it's possible to be too pessimistic about people want about people being hesitant. I think it's really this sort of, I think it's something a lot of people will just get on board with almost without thinking now in a way that I think seems almost, you know, would have been really amazing to think about a year ago when there was so much mm. kind of conspiracy theories and stuff floating around. And in fact, there was a, there was a great piece by uh, Tom Forth ages ago about um, uh, French miserabilism and how when we were comparing um, you know, vaccine take-up in surveys, as in, you know, question, would you take the vaccine? Um, France always came out really badly, but actually the, the data of who was actually then taking up the vaccine was sort of pretty comparable to the UK. And it was just basically people like saying, oh, I might not get it and yeah. being quite downcast about it. But actually when push came to shove, people fall into line, India. I think we just need more JVT. I think J I think Jonathan Van Tam. I really trust Jonathan Van Tam. I don't know what it is. I think he's a very good communicator, mm. and also he's got a nice face. He looks a bit like Penfold in Danger Mouse, and um, and everything he says, everything he says. But it's true. He's deeply, deeply trustworthy. If Jonathan Van Tam tells you to do something or that it's safe to do something, I think you just have to put all your eggs in the Van Tam basket and yes. have some faith. 
And tell me about your uh, plans for the days ahead, because, of course, you're both speaking to me from England, correct me if I'm uh, wrong, and on mm-hmm. Monday yeah. that there's something of a, of a reopening and there's going to be some shift in the in the Test and Trace app. Uh, I read in the papers this morning, James. So now every, everyone's going to, when you go into hospitality and you check in using the app, it's not just good enough for one in your group to um, actually check you in. Everyone's got to do the business with the QR code. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of my plans for the days ahead, it's sort of disappointment for me because although I'm slightly sick of lockdown, I've, my, my favourite form of socialising is, is just going for long walks with people. And I've been forcing everyone to do that with me um, mm. for the last few months. So I'm viewing, the, I'm viewing the prospect of returning to things like the pub and cafes um, and with sort of slightly downcast uh, expectations, I think. Um, Oh, no. I think probably no one is ever going to want to go for a walk with me again <laughs> to force people to walk so many miles across London, backwards and forwards. <laughs> India, what about you? Uh, I am, It's very strange now that it's actually upon us, you know, having been champing at the bit mm. and reached peak champing about a month ago, thinking I can't bear it anymore. I must go into the outside world and do normal things. Um, I am very much looking forward to eating food not cooked by me. Yes. So I'm going to go to a restaurant with outdoor tables, and that will be very nice. I am um, cautiously planning a shopping trip to Norwich. This is the height of glamour and excitement at the moment. But a very kind of, you know, I'm not going to be rushing to a department store, I don't think. No. I think having been, it's sort of Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? Having been incarcerated for so long, you think you're going to sprint out, but it's it's more a kind of tentative... Oh, yes, but, but it's interesting because James, you were to call me the other day about how you've stopped being shy, and it seems like everyone everyone else seems to have gone in the opposite direction. Is that fair? Yes. Well, this wasn't really I, this wasn't really a lockdown phenomenon for me. This was more of a mm. kind of uh, this is more of a kind of longer term thing. I think coming of um, age. Yeah. So th- I think I was talking of the kind of last few years of my life. But yeah, I don't know. I think. I don't know. It will be interesting to see whether I emerge into the, whether when I re-emerge into the world, whether I'll be like a sort of beautiful butterfly, uh, flapping my wings and socialising a lot, or whether I'll have turned back into a bit of a hermit crab again. And um, when you say hermit crab, you, 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 you talked about quite spectacular feats of, of shyness. What kind of things? Yeah. Oh, so this so this this column was more about thinking about. Um, you know, the prospect of meeting up with lots of people again, how that would once have filled me with horror. Mm. Um, and I was just remembering how every time something like this happens, I just feel so grateful that um, the shyness that I experienced when I was in my late teens and at university has sort of evaporated. Because, I mean, I remember at university finding it like almost, you know, people would like accost me in the street uh, and I'd find it difficult to talk back to them. And um, every time the prospect of renewed socialising uh, comes up due to COVID, I kind of think, oh my God, thank God that I can view this with... Um, uh, with with excitement, not with not with horror, as I would have done ten years ago. So it was a little kind of thing to feel grateful for, I think. Yes. And were you ever the same, India? I I tend to prefer um, shy people to very very extroverted people who I find performative and exhausting. Um, but J- but James's James's column wasn't suggesting that he had now become performative and exhausting. No. It was it was it was a sort of comfortable easing out of chronic. You blush, James. Did you go red? As well as be um, yeah, I did a bit. Um, well, I actually, I'm already quite a red person, um, so I go even redder, and it's just disastrous, really. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad things have improved. <laughs> <laughs> um, India, tell us about um, beaches amongst all of this, um, because you've picked out something you want to talk about in terms of um, the, the amount of plastic that, that, that Incredible people. Incredible amounts yeah. of 
uh, incredible amounts of litter, not aided by the fact that the, um, you know, those kind of one, well, supposedly one use of blue and white paper face masks are all over the place, including in the sea. I just, this is going to make me sound 100 years old, but I don't understand who these people are mm. who leave their stuff on the beach or, or on the path or in the woods or at the park. I mean, what are they doing? Why, why are they like that? And is, this, and is, this, is this from your own surveys as well? Are you... Are you are you near a beach? Is that something you're seeing on your own, own walks and things? No, I'm in, I'm in very, very remote countryside. Mm. Um, and I think that's maybe partly something to do with it. You know, the, the, the scenery is so beautiful that one old can of Coke or sort of empty water bottle re- is really, really incredibly jarring. When I lived in London, obviously, there was much more litter. Um, but, yeah, I don't I don't understand it. I don't understand who the people are who say, let's go for a lovely walk to a beauty spot, or even to not a beauty spot, even, you know, round the corner to the local garden square, and just leave all their stuff behind. Yes. What's it, is it about not having enough pockets? Then I thought yesterday, I thought, I'm obsessed with pockets and how, uh, uh, with how women's clothes frequently don't have pockets, and it's madness because you shove your mask in your pocket when you take it off and you shove your stuff in your pockets. Maybe people don't have enough pockets. Maybe people are wearing too few cl- pockety clothes i mean i don't know i can't i can't think of another reason why would why you wouldn't take your rubbish with you but also there's the question of what to do when you see someone in the in the court in the act and james are you a, are you an interceptor or are you a, a sort of distant tutter um no not at all i mean i'm quite an unobservant person so i never really i never notice people dropping litter i do i do think it's a bit of a lockdown phenomenon actually certainly no near me in london um, the couple of parks near me at the weekends are absolutely just um, roiling with people at weekends. And I'm there is a bit of litter around, but I'm always kind of amazed at how it's not so much worse because um, the park just on the road from me, London Fields, looks like Glastonbury Festival at a weekend in terms of the just sheer crowds of oh, people. Yeah. And I think they, I mean, in terms of the potential for litter disasters, and you think the place would just be covered in bottles and crisp packets and stuff. But I, th- I, think they, I, think they, I think we do all right. But as I say, I, I'm not an observant person. Um, I think so London Fields maybe is it's much worse than I'm perceiving it to be. I think London Fields is quite a young demographic. And I think really bad, persistent litter is a middle-aged. That's my conclusion. You are listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Luke Jones, in for Matt Chorley for uh, one day only. Fear not, he's back next week. That was India Knight and James Marriott, our columnists for today. Next, Alan Duncan and his diaries. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Inevitably, a serialisation picks out all the juicy bits, but uh, there's far more to it than just um, making comments. And of course, a diary is when you go home at night and sort of vent your rage at the page. And mm. It doesn't mean that you believe it forever it, it, it it's i mean the value of a diary is um it, is that it expresses the mood of the moment warts and all and if if you sanitize it and make it totally polite then they're false yes quite well quite uh, well what we're going to be doing is we're going to get beginning into the into the meat of it over the next uh, 25 minutes or so but also yeah. um some of those more salacious bits i've got a, a sort of a paper basket here we couldn't find a hat <laughs> And I've written out some names on some pieces of paper. And so throughout the interview, uh, we'll take a dip in the hat and we'll uh, have a brief chat about uh, some of your former colleagues. First of all, I wonder, have you heard from anyone after the serialisation? Well, funnily enough, of course, a lot of MPs uh, ping you a text. Am I in the index? Do I get a mention? Is it all right? Uh, But I mean, look, they've only got the serialisation to go on. And that is not the book. So um, uh, reading the book uh, will, as you say, kindly say over the next 25 minutes, we'll we'll go through some of the themes. Mm. But there's a a lot of serious comment in it about the nature of government and all that. And of course, it's recording what was uh, over a four year period, probably the most divisive episode in post-war British politics, which was the Brexit mm. debate. And it, it, it's a day by day chronicle of effectively parliamentary civil war. But we'll take us, to, we'll take us to the very start of that. You, you start with the, with the sort of build up to the calling of the EU referendum. Why did you want to start there? Well, um, as such, that they're sort of ministerial diaries. So um, I was, um, uh, well, I've been, Actually, I was out of uh, government at the time. I, I, I was called back by Theresa May when, when she took over from David Cameron. But the, um, the point is, this was obviously going to be a, a massive issue. So I thought I'd just keep notes, really, and uh, gradually became a daily, daily um, record of the ups and downs and uh, sort of happy and unhappy moments of the entire thing as, as Parliament began to unravel, really. So the referendum was obviously going to be big. So that was the starting point. And you talk in the diaries about your own position with the referendum question. You've been seen as a as a long time leaver. So there's some surprise. And it seemed like it took you a number of months to get your head around it. Yes, I mean, I, I, I actually am old enough to have voted in the 1975 referendum. And uh, I just was leaving school. So I just turned 18 and I voted. No, in other words, leave the EU. I was a leaver then. But by the time I'd sort of thought about it more, sort of um, however many years later it was, um, I I thought that we've become far more interdependent as European countries. Uh, The free trade across the mainland of Europe is great value. I think acting as a bloc can sometimes be a very good thing. And that we'd actually excluded ourselves from most of the really bad bits, particularly on immigration, but also on the single currency. So, I mean, the David Cameron argument that we sort of had the best of both worlds, I thought was was right. And I thought that we'd turned, become, we, you know, those who were advocating it, I think were using very simple arguments, which were becoming a little bit too nationalistic. And the arguments were not really put about how our life would be conducted once we'd left. And, you know, that is still a rumbling problem, of course, mm. particularly you look at Northern Ireland, you look at some of our 
non-existent trade deals, you look at the reduction in uh, trade with the European mainland, you look at investment beginning to move out of the city of London, and you've got massive pressure for a referendum in Scotland. These are slow burn consequences of leaving the European Union. So th that was my argument. So in the end, I thought, better for Britain if we just stay put and keep it, even though it's not a perfect setup. And you write in the diary about going to see the, the Vote Leave campaign, to, to have a talk with them and, and see where they were on this. You say, as you've I've kind of alluded to there, that you felt at the time they were pandering to the worst kind of, of, of UKIP zealotry. Matthew Elliott's telling of this, that the Vote Leave chief exec says that you asked for a seat on the board and then when you didn't get that, that's why you went to remain. What do you, what do you make of that? I didn't even know there was a board and I certainly never asked for a seat. Uh, yes, I went to the I went to their offices to see if you know I wanted to play a part in what was obviously going to be a, a pretty energetic campaign. Uh, this thing about positions and all that is is, is bears no recollection of, of any kind of meeting, and the book is quite clear about this. That I went there and I immediately felt very uncomfortable, uh, and um, in a way, it made me go away and think even more that this was not the direction in which I wanted to go. Mm. So, um, you know, the, 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 these people campaign like that. I, I, I don't care. Uh, but read the book and you'll see that the picture is very different. And at the time, what did you make of, of David Cameron's handling of all of this, the, the promising of the referendum, the eventual calling of it? You know, we've mentioned some of the uh, slightly more snide comments about people. But in the book, you say, you know, for all his faults, you thought he was decent. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Um Likewise, Theresa May. I mean, I, I, I think what um, drove this was wanting to see off the UKIP threat. And so I think that to win an election, it was promise a referendum. So it takes the wind out of the UKIP sails and we win. But, of course, you're then committed to a referendum. And the basic assumption was, oh, don't worry, we'll have a referendum, we'll win it. Well, that was the rash gamble, which, of course, uh, did not pay off. So, um, it, 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 you know, it, it'll, it'll bug David for the rest of his life. I've no doubt that this gamble went in the direction that he did not want to go. But I think what the book also describes is, and this was very early in the book, you know, before I was a minister again, that, was that I, I think the campaign was held too tightly. You know, it, it was just done by number 10. And I think for something that cuts across parties and regions and even families, uh, an, uh, a campaign like this needed to be far more all-embracing. And that's probably where it went wrong. And of course, the Labour Party did almost nothing to campaign to stay in. And so it looked like a sort of verdict on the number 10 at the time. And mm. that invariably is negative. And obviously, lots of people talk about that Brexit as being... David Cameron's legacy now. I wonder what you make of the of the current question of his legacy in terms of the revelations about how he carried on in office with uh, Lex Greensill and and the lobbying that, that he undertook afterwards on behalf of him and on behalf of Greensill. What have you made reading all of those in the papers? I, I think uh, it's a bit unfair. I mean, I, I don't think um, you can have seen that the green saw was going to collapse that it did you know unlucky him actually i mean i i don't point the finger at david cameron at all on this what i don't understand is how lex green uh, Greensill um was given a a um you know a number 10 business card by the then cabinet secretary hmm. that's that, that's what i i think looks very peculiar i mean uh, i i i think that um 
um, it, Jeremy Hayward made an error here. I mean, I, I, I don't want to criticize someone who's recently died particularly, but you know, since you've asked the question, mm. um, I don't see how someone could properly be given a position in number 10, bypassing all the, uh, the departmental scrutiny and everything, just because he seemed to have a wizard scheme for financing the public sector bills. So that's what puzzles me more than anything else. And didn't you write in the book as well about, um, in terms of all this, uh, these ethical questions, about your own situation with being a minister, you originally wanted to be a Middle East uh, foreign office minister, but then um, you had sort of run-ins with Sue Gray, who was in charge of ethics at the time. Well, actually, that's not quite the story. Um, I was effectively uh, appointed foreign minister as if to be the minister for the, for the Middle East, but actually... It was intervention from the Conservative Friends of Israel, which I consider using its uh, power and influence at the centre of government to stop it, because those who run it at the very top uh, do not like my views on on Palestinian justice. I mean, I'm pro-Israel. I'm totally against uh, anyone who is anti-Semitic. And I think, nonetheless, that Israel should confine itself to its own borders and not take any neighbouring land. That's the simple point. They shouldn't take Palestinian land. Therefore, I'm against settlements, which are the illegal annexation of a neighbouring country. Now, it would appear, and uh, I say this directly in the book, that Lord Pollack, who, who runs the CFI, takes a very contrary view. He may pretend otherwise, but behind the scenes, he will use influence to stop things. And I think this is improper influence in our public life. It's wrong. It's improper. Well, of course, he's not here to uh, to defend himself. Uh, speaking of which, we're going to take a dip into the basket <laughs> to hear about other colleagues. Uh, this one is, and I've got, we've got quotes with them. Gavin Williamson, ludicrously unqualified for the heavyweight job of Defence Secretary, having never run anything. Thoughts? Uh, again, in the book, yes, I, I don't think he was a good appointment as Defence Secretary. Uh, I think you know, as was written up, up, up at the time, he was chief whip and uh, I think probably uh, uh, pushed for the removal of Michael Fallon only then to try and fill the shoes himself. He was wholly unqualified for it. And um, I don't think Ministry of Defence was a happy place when he was Secretary of State. And what about now he's at education? Um, well, I'm sort of out of it now. And uh, so I don't obviously get given the same kind of information um, he struggled, uh, uh, of course, but I mean, I think that uh, others can make their own judgments. I mean, I, I'm not here so much to comment on current stuff mm. uh, as to say, look, this is a day to day record of four years of massive public or upheaval in public life. And I hope, therefore, it's it, it's something which catches the mood uh, forever, which often books that look back or articles or so you know don't because the thing about a diary is that when you sort of go home at night or write it up the next morning the immediate emotion is still there and you sort of what I might call emote by expressing your rage at the page that doesn't mean that you then think those views forever but it does say what you thought at the time but the other purpose of it was that I I hope behaved properly as a minister I didn't do nasty briefings. I was loyal to Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary and Theresa May as Prime Minister. It was all the others who were going around, you know, 
briefing in the press at the time. So at the time, you weren't briefing against Boris Johnson when he was uh, no, first secretary? No, I, I mean, I, I had a, one or two sort of very direct conversations with him, but that's honest, you know, to the face. But I did not brief behind his back uh, when he was foreign secretary at all. Uh, and that was, you know, I may have been Europe minister, but actually I was not... Uh, involved in the day-to-day Brexit negotiations because that was held that that, that was conducted by Number Ten hmm. and um, by the department which was put up for the which was you know made for the purpose Dexu. And, and in terms of um, working <clears throat> under Boris Johnson in the Foreign Office, obviously <clears throat> there's lots of as you said previously reported lots of lots of criticism on on your part of him. But there's an interesting section where you talk about a a meeting with the Russian ambassador around the time of the Skripal poisoning. Um, And you're pleasantly surprised with how he conducts that as foreign secretary. Well, I hope I reflect this uh, in the book. I mean, I wasn't just pleasantly surprised. Uh, I thought this was Boris Johnson at his very, very best. And in a way, you know, my uh, comments on Boris are are that he's an extraordinary calibre and character. Uh, but I think he's at his best when he applies himself with discipline to be serious and doesn't get sort of drawn sideways into, as I put it in the book, you know, larking about. Now, when uh, there was the Novichok poisoning in Salisbury and we just had absolutely irrefutable evidence it was the uh, the Russians, or at least it was Russian Novichok, uh, we summoned the, um, the Russian ambassador. And in the foreign secretary's room was just... Uh, one of our departmental uh, officials, head, head official, who's now the permanent secretary, Boris and me. And then in came the Russian ambassador and his deputy standing on the other side of the table, didn't even sit down. And Boris delivered the most brilliant, masterly dressing down. And I reflect this in the book because it, it does illustrate that, you know, Boris Johnson on top form is absolutely top notch. Um, and he... You know, I, I said at the end, I'm genuinely, genuinely proud of him and, you know, on behalf of the country for what he's just done in telling the uh, Russian ambassador exactly what he thinks. And uh, so it's all there. And actually, I'm glad you've raised this because although all the insults have been in the serialization, this is a book which is far more generous spirited than it is nasty. And um, but it is a reflection of the pressures and the anger and the antics, if you like, of those four years. Yeah. We'll have more on that in a moment, but I just, I just wonder in terms of uh, sticking with Boris Johnson and, and you saying him, him on top form is top notch, uh, especially at a moment of crisis. What have you made, again, albeit now from the sidelines, of his handling of the pandemic? Is this Boris Johnson on top form? Actually, I think yes. I mean, you know, I, the way I answer that when I'm asked is, well, can you imagine Jeremy Corbyn having done this? I mean, the fact is, this is a once-in-a-century... Uh, national and indeed international crisis of whopping magnitude and proportions and significance. And I think that his force of personality was actually critical uh, to galvanising national unity, uh, to lock down, react and appreciate the gravity of what it was we were coping with. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that there are few politicians who would have been able to do that. And, you know, we should also, by the way, give credit to a lot of politicians and officials who for the last year have probably spent every waking moment uh, coping with this crisis. And whereas at the beginning there were some errors like the procurement of, of protective equipment, which was, was pretty ramshackle, the vaccine is a genuine world beater 
Um, you know, no other country of this size has had such a successful vaccination program. And I think that, um, you know, that will be the legacy of this government's handling of the um, pandemic. And would an inquiry help assess that? Well, it's very easy to call for an inquiry, and I'm sure there will be one. But look, go and look at the history of inquiries. They end up taking five years and costing 100 million. Whereas probably if they took five weeks and cost 100,000, you would get fresher and better observations, evidence and conclusions. Mm. So I'm very wary of the, if you like, the effectiveness of inquiries because they become very cumbersome, expensive. And you end up with a, a document that's 500 pages long that nobody reads, whereas the executive summary is probably all that matters. I'm going to ask you about uh, the uh, juicy matter of, of leadership elections in a moment, but first, I'm just going to take another dip in the hat and pick out another <laughs> name of a, of a former colleague of yours. Which one is this one? Um, gosh, Mark Francois, Airhead Waddle, Waddlebottom. <laughs> well, that was the teasing name we gave him. I, I think he, um, he, I don't know what to say really. I mean, I, I, I think he. He got very, very wound up about Brexit and um, became very difficult to talk to in a humorous way because he was just so revved up. You know, he was a pressure cooker of opinion and activity and everything, um, which is, of course, one way of going about it. Um, but it, it, it did mean that um, he, he was just um, in an unstoppable sort of, I don't know, frenzy all the time. But, you know, there we are. <laughs> it takes all sorts. I mean, I, th I think Brexit genuinely drove a lot of people into a state of, of quite deep anxiety and misery. Um, it, it did affect the character of quite a lot of people because it was an intense sort of pressure cooker issue in Parliament. I mean, it, there was none like it. And it went on and on and on. And can, and continues to go on and on and on. Um, you um, you want to talk to you about uh, leadership elections because, of course, you, you you dealt with a fair few of them in your time. Um, first of all, uh, Theresa May, um, you you were urging her to stand, and in the book, I'm intrigued that you add a line where in the diaries at the time you say, "And there's a tiny bit of me that thinks I might yet stand myself." <laughs> well, it wasn't really. I think long since passed. I mean, you know, it's very easy to deride anyone who uh, you know might ever think of standing but or, the point in the book is that actually a lot of people considered themselves um, suitable who, who didn't have any roots or foundations or particular experience I mean you know people who've been in parliament for two or three years look I mean you need some kind of you need to have been through the mincer a bit and for people to know about your character what your beliefs are you can't just put yourself up and say, I'm fresh, I'm new, it's got to be me. Mm. And there were too many of those floating around in the leadership election. So, you know, when um, Theresa May resigned, um, and there were only three or four, really, who I thought were in any way credible um, uh, candidates. So um, I am a bit disparaging in the book because there's a theme in the book that, 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 that a lot of people who become ministers get their too far, too fast, and then wither. And there should be more progress, more, yeah, more of a sort of progress of, of someone's political career before they assume massive responsibility at the top. Because nobody tells you how to be a minister. The best way to understand how to do it is to learn it on the job. And the sort of supervision of um, 
you know, ministerial teams is near zero. It's a very random process. And so I, I just think that a lot of the, some very talented new MPs who've been there less than, uh, I know, 10 years, let's say, um, should be, if you like, blooded at a junior ministerial level before they get ideas above this, you know, about their station, if I can put it that way. And do you see that situation now? Because there's there's some strain of opinion which says that Boris Johnson has a cabinet not of people suited to the job, but a cabinet of, of people who agree with him, and, and that's the overriding factor in him choosing. Is that something you see now? Is, is that something that you, uh, that you sense in him at the time? Well, I think that was definitely true um, as soon as he became Prime Minister, because it was basically a culling of anyone who was a Remainer. It was... Uh, the main qualification was sort of... Uh, Brexit purity. Um, well, OK for a bit, but you can't, uh, I think, survive as a, a credible government looking at all issues, all parts of the country, if, if that if, if that is your criterion for uh, getting into a ministerial job. And, you know, in these days, there are also pressures, of course, of gender balance, ethnic balance. You know, the first thing you guys in journalism do is count the number of women and all that kind of stuff. So a prime minister has a a very difficult task in piecing together uh, a ministerial team. But I think that doesn't matter as much as uh, how you then drive them and what you demand of them afterwards. And managing that team um, is something that, you know, doesn't really happen in our government. Mm. Give us an honest assessment of what it's like working as a minister under, um, or just working in any way underneath Theresa May. Because in the... In the book, it's hard to sense how disappointed you were by her as a prime minister in the end and has her as her skills as a politician. You mentioned that you've you've known her for over 40 years and yet it's littered with references to um, no easy conversation. She's not expressing anything to you. You have a long awaited face to face meeting with her at one point and you say she's remote and disconnected. Um, it sounds like quite testing stuff. No, I mean, she's tough. She's rational. She was hardworking. Um, but. She was outgunned by what was primarily a, a Brexiteer army. And I urged her on occasion to be tougher and more outspoken. I mean, I, I, there was a point actually where I did say to her that if, um, you know, in a split party, uh, this party within the party, the ERG, continued to defy the whip, then they should have the whip withdrawn. Well, she was so dutiful and decent. She didn't want to bring the party and the government to a state of collapse. Um, and so she didn't. But then the irony, of course, is that within a few minutes of Boris Johnson becoming prime minister, he did withdraw the whip after one vote and 21 people had it uh, taken away. Well, that tactic, I think, could better have been deployed earlier um, and and wasn't. But, you know, that, that that's that's why I think the book's interesting, because if I can say so, because yeah, it, it, it looked at all the, and I, it sounds, Lucas, though you found it relatively interesting, uh, it, it, it is, is that it explains these pressures at the time and the, the tightrope Theresa May was walking in trying to keep the government uh, uh, going. I mean, there was a danger it would just collapse. You end up with the Corbyn government, but, but, you know, but, all that. But what's, not, but what's not clear in it is whether you think she was just in the wrong gear the whole time or whether you thought she actually had it in her. No, uh, yes, of course she had it in her, but it, I, I think found it particularly difficult, as any prime minister would, uh, in the face of your own party being split 
uh, and the uh, handling the seismic consequences of what we do uh, with the EU uh, after the um, referendum vote said leave. Mm. So managing that I mean, without damaging the country, which I think, you know, a complete no deal exit would have done. And, you know, again, another irony, we ended up with a deal that wasn't far off and in some respects worse than the one Theresa May kept on putting before Parliament, but had, a, but, but was undermined on by her own side. You were the first openly gay Conservative MP coming out in in 2002. And at one point in the diary, you say, uh, when looking at, I think it's when looking at the, the 29 intake, you say, uh, maybe I've achieved something and that 24 of them are LGBT and probably none of them realise what it took to make that a positive news story instead of a cause for resignation. Um, a while ago on this programme, I think it was for um, LGBT History Month, um, we heard from uh, one uh, Labour MP who said that uh, he regularly, almost still to this day, uh, faced homophobia from from colleagues and also from members of House of Commons staff. I wonder what that was like for you um, in in more recent years. More recent years, not a problem. I've never had it from ever from that, uh, House of Commons staff. I simply don't understand any such reference, um, and I, I, that sounds like a, a very unfair comment. Um, amusingly, the the great announcement was in the Times. Uh, in 2002, um, which seems a long time ago now. And I, I just felt that, you know, the left, of course, will campaign on these things ahead of the right because, you know, they, they, they challenge social norms. It, it just goes with their politics. The more conventional approach of conservatives meant that it was more difficult to survive in conservative circles and be respected if you were gay. I'm pleased to say now it's makes it just like having different coloured hair, it doesn't matter. Um, and one of the nicest things I got was a letter from someone after I did this who said, you know, thank you so much. My grandson is gay. You at last have made me feel respectable. Now, that to me summed it up, because if this can just be an issue, as I think it now is, where even, you know, the most stuffy person in the world says well that's why it doesn't bother me oh, that's okay you know what's wrong with that then we've won so i thought the example was what was important I, I i wasn't a massive campaigner but the example i think just broke the mold and yeah i hope it did achieve something um but the point is in the book it says there they all are they can come in i was nearly disqualified from being a conservative mp at the very beginning for being thought to be gay I was, you know, taken out by a, a senior agent in the party. Is, is there anything that you've got to tell us? You know, is, is there anything you want to say? I, internally, I was saying no. So they go shove it. Mm. But plight at it. No, it's all, all fine. Thank you. I think I'm qualified. Da, 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 da. And just very finally, I want to ask you about um, the future. Boris Johnson offered you a, a seat in the Lords. What, why didn't you take it? Uh, he didn't. Uh, and it was neither offered nor asked for. And uh, do you know what? Um, I, I think it's wrong to be drawn on this because I think these things should always just be out of the way. But I don't think I would. You don't think you would? And and I wonder if you what if you have any political ambitions left. I remember ages ago, wasn't it in some WikiLeaks um, uh, leaks of uh, some American intelligence cables when they were looking at Conservative MPs? They wrote, "What are Duncan's political ambitions?" I wonder what they are now. 
Uh, I think my political career is now behind me. Uh, I, apart from publishing the book, I'm a, a private citizen. Uh, I, look, I, I, I think I, 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 I've had my time. Uh, politics has moved on to generations. I mean, it's, it, there isn't an appetite for older people anymore in politics. Uh, it thirsts for novelty. Uh, and younger people, or so is his thought. So, you know, just look back at it with, with gratitude. I, I, I'm glad that I had some ministerial service, which I hope was uh, dutiful and, and, and productive. There's quite a lot in the book about what I covered in the Foreign Office, which I think is a, a legacy of sorts. So, um, you know, always be a happy politician. Never look back with any bitterness or resentment. Just be grateful for the fact that one has been able to be in on events, or as I might describe it, in the thick of it. Alan Duncan on his diaries. Uh, they're published next week, if you fancy it. That's it from us on the Box Politics podcast. Matt is back from holiday. I think he's just about uh, sobered up and picked up a newspaper to refresh himself. He'll be back live on Times Radio Monday from 10am if you're a uh, linear listening kind of person or, of course, back on this podcast again next week. Thank you very much for having me. If you uh, are around at the weekend, do tune into Weekend Breakfast, which is my usual home, 6am till 10am, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I know things are unlocking quite a bit at the moment, but, you know, you still haven't got that much on. So if you need some company in the morning, do try us out. We're live on Times Radio. You can get us on DAB, smart speaker, your phone, um, you know, all the usual ways that you get a radio station. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to this podcast if you uh, like it on any app that you've got us on. The Times Radio app is a good place to listen to this podcast, I'd say. And also, if you want to read the Red Box email, which is out every weekday morning, written by the fantastic Patrick Maguire, you've got to be a Times subscriber to get that. So if you want to subscribe, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. That's it from me. Goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.